Thank you, Tony, for those overkind remarks. And thank you, the Martin's, Oxford Martin School, for inviting me to give me this opportunity to address you. Um, both of them, uh, both Ian and, and Tony, have referred to my book. Uh, in half an hour, I cannot give you an idea of what the book, book is about. If anyone is interested, there's a flyer outside, and I understand there's a special tab table in Blackwell if you want, want to have a look at the book. Um, this is not really an area of my expertise. Uh, I know a little bit more about India than about China. I've been to China many times now, but uh, I know very little about China. But the comparison of China and India, particularly the economic comparison, in has interested me for a long time. One of my first articles I wrote uh, shortly after I uh, graduated was on China and India. Uh, of course, now the media, particularly the financial media, uh, uh, they're agog with the rise of China and India in the last quarter century, in the global economy in the last quarter century. Um, now, as a result, what's happened, and of course, recently, after the global uh, recession, uh, these two countries uh, did much better than much of the rest of the world. And so that has attracted a lot of attention. I'm not going to talk about short-run issues like global recession, etc. Uh, I'm interested primarily in long-run structural issues. Um, and that, too, I'll just touch on a few things. Uh, and then uh, maybe, uh, hopefully, uh, um, I'll whet your appetite to have a look at the book. Um, let me start with a historical footnote. And this, uh, I'm not going to use, I have a PDF, but I'm not going to use this much, just for a few charts. Uh, I'll just, let me go straight to the chart. This is the chart I had in mind. So, this is from data from Angus Madison. Um, so, this is for 200 years. So, this is starting at 1820. Uh, in 18, and this is a percentage of world income and, uh, by different sets of countries. This is China. Thought in 1820, one third of world income was contributed by China. This is India. I don't know why India is red and China is not. But 16% um, uh, in 1820 uh, was uh, India. So the two countries together was about half of world income. Uh, if you're interested, this is Japan. Uh, this little tiny bit is the United States. And this maroon colored or whatever colored, uh, this is the four large countries of Europe. <laughs> Jump to 1950, so these two countries together is about 9% of world income. So from 49% to 9%, a very big drop. And of course, all of us know lots of things happened in between, uh, including, as the Chinese and the Indians will point out, rather unpleasant encounters with international powers. And of course, the United States is the big 27% there. Jump to projection. This is projection. Uh, and 
in 2025, uh, the two countries together will be about 36%. So not a full restoration of what it was 200 years back, but a partial restoration. And of course, a corresponding decline uh, still very large, 18% would be United States. The decline is more prominent in, in, in the four large countries of Europe. Um, so that gives you some numerical perspective of what's going on over these 200 years. Last, the 2025 figures is, of course, a projection, may or may not be correct uh, when, uh, when the time comes around. Now, we all know that the economic growth-wise, China has done much better, much better than India. Um, in fact, in 1870s, as well as the 1970s, per capita income was higher in India than in China. Then, from around 1990 or so, China, Chinese per capita income relative to India surged way above. And now, of course, it's much, much above India's. The rate of growth of per capita income, even accounting for what some people think is some overstatement in the Chinese rates of growth, even accounting for that, the per capita income growth in China over the last um, uh, 25 years has been at least twice that of India. Very uh, one or two words about the, about the composition, the pattern of growth. Uh, one big difference is that the, much of the, the Chinese um, uh, success has been in manufacturing, uh, whereas India, the success stories are in service sector. And uh, there also I should, one of the purposes of my book is really to sort of qualify some of the conventional wisdom that is accumulating about these two countries. So for example, um, China is now regarded as a manufacturing workshop of the world, is the center of world manufacturing. Yes and no. E economists are usually interested not so much in the value of output as such, but output minus materials, components, etc. So economists are usually interested in value added. If you take manufacturing value added, 2009 figures, I remember, um, China contributed 15.15% of world manufacturing value added. Japan, about the same. United States, about 25%. And EU, about 20%. So China will get there, but not yet in value added terms, the manufacturing center of the world. Similarly, uh, the India big success story is of service sector. People, you've heard about software, you've heard about business processing, um, down to call centers, low tech end of it, the call centers, uh, et cetera, accounting, um, uh, uh, and so on in India. Again, I want to qualify this a little bit. Yes, this is a big story about India, but how big it is, is it? Um, if you take all the IT, information technology enabled services in which India is doing well, all of it, including the low end call centers, how many people do they employ? They employ less than one half of 1% of India's total labor force. So 
even if big changes happen, as big changes are happening in that subsector of the economy, it cannot transform the Indian economy because it's so small percentage of the total uh, labor force. A and in fact, uh, one of the big difference between China and India is that India is a very large informal sector. And uh, the informal, much of the growth is also in the informal sector, not just in the formal sector. Tiny, tiny enterprises, um, and, and they are quite often below the policy radar, as it were. So big stories about economic reform may not directly affect them. Of course, there is a connection between the formal sector and the informal sector, but those connections are not that strong. Over time, probably will get stronger with the mobile phone. Mobile phone is making a big difference, the link between the formal and the informal sector. The other difference in the pattern of growth I want to comment on is um, uh, that the Chinese pattern of growth, particularly in the beginning, in the 80s and the 90s, has been in the labor-intensive industries. The Chinese export success stories uh, have been in very labor-intensive products like garments, like shoes, uh, like toys, like wigs, etc. Whereas the Indian success stories are not in labor-intensive industries. Indian success stories are, apart from software and business processing, which are highly skill-intensive, Indian success stories have been in pharmaceuticals. That's also highly skill-intensive. And more recently, India has been relatively successful in world exports of vehicles and car parts, China also in car parts. But these are more capital intensive, skill, relatively skill and capital and skill intensive. Chinese pattern of growth is changing now. Uh, over the last 10, 15 years, China is going moving toward from labor intensive to capital intensive and high tech uh, end of, uh, of the industrial spectrum. But this initial difference, China's emphasizing labor intensive industries, India not so, has made a difference in terms of poverty, the impact of growth on poverty. So let me jump to that. Uh, I have some poverty figure. Oh, before I go into that, I, this chart I wanted to show you. Some people think that Chinese rate of growth has been uh, unprecedented. Chinese rate of growth certainly has been uh, very impressive, but not unprecedented in value-added terms. This is value-added in the manufacturing, largely in the manufacturing sector. In the first 25 years after growth spurt started, so four Asian countries, uh, the, the South Korea, Taiwan, China, and, um, and, and Japan, those are the four countries depicted there. But of course, the growth spurt started at different times. In, in Japan, it starts, I think, in 1950, uh, Taiwan next, then South Korea, and then China, and so on. But if you look at it, the, this is value-added. The top rate of growth in the first 25 years of growth spurt is South Korea. This is Taiwan. This is China. And this is Japan. So China has now outpaced, in the first 25 years, the rate of growth in value-added. The other corresponding thing about value-added I wanted to mention, and again, a conventional wisdom about China is that China is primarily an export-driven growth. And we believe that because whenever you go to a department store, anything we buy at the back, it's made in China. In fact, 
I'm told in India, uh, if you want to now, in, in Mumbai, if you want to buy little idols of Ganesh, which is a, one of the gods um, uh, that uh, people worship, his back is made in China. Uh, so that creates the impression that, uh, that exports is the primary driving force. Yes, export played a very important role, but not the most important driving force in Chinese growth. The most important driving force in Chinese growth is domestic. That is domestic investment. In fact, I could, I could give you some numbers. Uh, between Even in the, in the last decade, between, say, 2001, when China became a part of WTO, and 2007, just before the global crisis, if you take this period, which, is the show, which saw a phenomenal expansion of global trade, even in this period, what was the contribution of exports to China, total Chinese growth? Not a little above a quarter. Much of the growth is driven by domestic investment, not consumption, but domestic investment. So again, I want to qualify the conventional wisdom that the Chinese story is essentially an export story. Not so. Let me, uh, what I was going on to is to give you some figures on, sorry, um, on poverty that I want to go on to. Now, these figures are not my figures. These are from the World Bank numbers. Uh, there are problems with the World Bank numbers, but let me not go into them right now. So let me take, say, a very crude measure of poverty of $1 a day per capita. In 2005, that PPP, what economists lingo for purchasing power parity, which is essentially to make prices comparable between countries. So if you take that, so you have from 1981 to 2005, for the two countries, China and India, first the percentage of population below that poverty line, uh, and then the number in millions. I want you to, to note three things out of it, uh, of these two panels. Two of these are very well known. The third is not. First, you see this percentage of population below that poverty line 81 to 2005, less than a quarter century. This 73.5% in China is now in single digit in 2005. This is a remarkable, uh, very impressive, uh, extremely impressive uh, performance in terms of poverty. I personally think that this is an overestimate, but let me not go into that right now. Uh, India also has a significant decline, but not as dramatic as, as China's. And of course, it becomes even more dramatic when you look at millions of people, count heads. So 1981 and 2005, by the same data, uh, 624 million people were lifted above the poverty line in China. Never before in history this has happened. So historically, unparalleled achievement. So that those are two facts that I just mentioned. Um, if, you, if you use different poverty lines, it will come with slightly different figures, but qualitatively very similar results. The third, which is not very well known. So if you read the financial press, even the most well-known ones, like the Financial Times, e Economist, etc., you get the impression that much of it is because of globalization. China's successful integration into the global economy. I want to qualify that. Because China became very well integrated into the global economy 
only in the later part, the, the latter part of this quarter century. Uh, China became a member of the WTO in 2001, but even before, say, late middle 1990s onward, China became really integrated to the global economy. But if you look at these numbers of the 624 million raised above the poverty line, more than half is raised by 1987. That's not a big period of globalization for China. Some, yes, but not a big. So what happened in the early 1980s? A big institutional reform in China um, in the agricultural sector. And that's where most of the poor people were. And the big institutional change, of course, China moved from the commune system to the household responsibility system. That's a big institutional change. Nothing to do with, very little to do with globalization, per se. It's entirely domestic. I would claim it's not just that institutional change. When land use was given to uh, individuals, households, something else happened, which very few other countries have. Land was more or less equitably, equitably distributed, subject to one or two qualifications, which I need not go into right now. Each family got an equal amount of land. So since each family got an equal amount of land, that provided a floor to your income. It couldn't fall below. Contrast that with India. India today, or even for quite some time, nearly half of the rural households are either landless or near landless. So India does not have that floor to poverty. And that's, I think, a big change. So that has very little to do with globalization. This is not to say globalization did not play a role in reduction of poverty. I think in later years, the reduction has a lot to do with globalization, particularly those labor-intensive exports created jobs. Foreign direct investment uh, created jobs in, 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 in China. Inequality I'm going to skip over because I don't have time. Let me uh, just again say something. Uh, if, I, if anybody's interested, I can answer in question-answer session. Uh, the standard presumption in much of the financial media is that Chinese inequality and, of course, Indian inequality, they're going up. That's largely true, even though in the last few years, last four or five years, it's somewhat uh, stabilized in China, the inequality. But the, the conventional wisdom that I want to qualify is this. Standard presumption is that Chinese inequality now is much higher or significantly higher than that of India. Not true because they're comparing apples and oranges. The Indian data, Indian, the Indian official agencies do not collect income data. They collect consumption data. And usually in most countries, consumption inequality is less than, consumption expenditure inequality is, is less than income inequality. One or two times, India, uh, some agencies in India have computed, have collected income data. And when you do that, the income inequality figure in India is not just higher than China's, it's much higher. To me, what is more important than inequality of income is inequality of opportunity. And in these two countries, inequality of opportunity is reflected in inequality of land distribution, inequality of education, and inequality of social status. In all these three, I'm claiming, and I go in quite a bit of detail in my book, that India's inequality of opportunity is much higher than in China. Next thing that I mention is, of course, um, um, uh, the 
I've talked about poverty, inequality. Uh, by the way, because inequality in, China, in India is higher, the same 1% growth reduces poverty much less in India than in China. Uh, talking about negative things like inequality, let me just go into uh, the env en uh, environment. Oops, uh, just one thing I wanted to show um, that some of you might be interested. One inequality in which India is slightly better is an aspect of gender inequality. So I just wanted to show you that. In terms of crude thing like child sex ratio, in the zero to six age group, the number of boys uh, uh, per uh, uh, hundred girls. In China, uh, you can see this here, the darker it is, the more gender imbalance. And this is a large part of South and East China where the corresponding here is Punjab and Haryana in India. So roughly on an average, Chinese, uh, the number of boys, uh, 122 for 100 girls. In India, the corresponding number is 109. And in fact, there's some evidence this already leading to controlling from other factors leading to increased crime in China. But that's a different story. But that's one aspect of gender inequality in which India is somewhat better. But there's other aspects of gender inequalities India is worse. Female literacy, uh, female participation in the labor force, all those aspects China is much better than India. That means, um, oops, so what did I do? I must have, okay. Uh, I have uh, some chart I just wanted to show you about environment that, of course, is a big problem in China now. If I can get it. Um, so what I have is satellite image of, ah, here it is. This is from the Nature magazine. Emission from fossil fuel combustion. All you need to know, the, the, the redder it is, the worse. And you can see the difference. Uh, this is Northeast China. This is a bit in Southeast China. Contrast that with Korea, contrast that with Japan. And of course, this is India. So in terms of uh, emission, it's really Chinese, uh, uh, Chinese economy has reached an alarming level. This, of course, not because energy, uh, the pollution levels, uh, pollution efficiency is any better in India, uh, but it's because India has industrialized less car ownership is less, and so on. By the way, okay, um, uh, I should, when I said pollution, it's, it's, this is usually outdoor pollution. In both of these countries, a very important aspect of uh, pollution is indoor pollution, because essentially out of the cooking fire, uh, and most of the victims are women. Um, in the WHO has estimated that every year, India has uh, more than half a million people, mostly women, uh, who die uh, unnecessary death because of indoor pollution. And ch for China, the number is even higher than that. So Tony has indicated that my time is almost up. So let me just mention, uh, a large part of the book is really not just these numbers. Large part of the book is about the political process. So I'll just very quickly talk about two aspects of it. Um, and I have a whole chapter on the nature of capitalism in both countries. And the longest chapter of the book is on governance 
and accountability, which is the last chapter of the book. So just two quick remarks. Of course, capitalism is thriving in both countries. The, the Chinese case is the more interesting one because arguably the world's most vigorous capitalism uh, development of vigorous, most vigorous development of capitalism is, is being presided over by a communist party. And of course, the communist party composition itself has changed. Um, I saw some numbers uh, for 2005. Uh, it's not a workers and peasants party primarily anymore. The total of the total 75 million members of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, workers and peasants constitute about 29%. The rest are businessmen, professionals, college students. The other interesting statistics I also saw from a study of, um, prepared by the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences is about, will tell you about the nature of capitalism, um, is uh, 2007, the total number of Chinese residents who had wealth more than 100 million yuan, which at that time was about $14 million. What's the number? Three, about 3,500. Of these, about 3,000 were relatives of members of the high officials of the party. So that tells you a little bit about the nature of capitalism that's developing. Uh, the Chinese well-respected senior economist in Beijing, Jing Lianu, has called this crony capitalism. Uh, now, in a way, crony capitalism in India as well, there's a lot of cozy relationship between the, 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 the family business empires and politics, but nowhere near what it is, developed, the way it's developing in China. If anyone's interested, I'd be happy to go into that in the question answer. Last remark is about the governance and accountability. Whenever one talks about China and India, people say, oh, that's about democracy and dictatorship. Uh, I personally think that's too oversimple. That's an, another conventional wisdom I, uh, that I qualify in my book. I think the relationship between authoritarianism and development is quite complex. Chinese leadership now says, our essentially gives the impression that the Chinese model is the best model, the, the combination, a combination of capitalism and authoritarianism. I personally think that's, that, that, that's too oversimplification. I think the uh, authoritarianism is neither necessary nor sufficient for development. And I uh, expand on that argument in my, uh, in my book. The other thing I wanted to, in a sense, a paradoxical thing that I wanted to mention, two paradoxical things I wanted to mention, that even though India is more democratic, in terms of decentralized governance, China has progressed much more. And that, that is some sounds paradoxical, but decentralized governance has also brought some problems in China, in terms of regional inequality, in terms of the central government now finding it difficult to control the local officials who in collusion with local business carry out some of the capitalist excesses, whether it's land acquisition, whether it's product safety violation, or whether it's toxic pollution. Capitalist excess is quite often done at the local level because locals have a lot more autonomy than they, they have in India. And the last thing is about, the second and the last paradoxical fact that I want to mention, a lot of people think that ostensibly the Chinese state is a very strong state. The leaders can decide, uh, take decisions very quickly and, and firmly, whereas the Indian system looks messy and the, the Indian leadership looks very weak. The paradox, paradoxical fact that I discuss quite a bit in the book 
in another sense, I think this, the Chinese uh, political regime is weaker. It's more fragile. It, its information base is more fragile. And the regime legitimacy is more fragile. In 2008-9, the crisis hit. Chinese growth rate fell to started falling. Even uh, the Communist Party officials started saying that if it falls below 8%, the regime is in trouble. I, at that time, I was in Beijing. I was joking with my friends in China. I said, in India, if the growth rate falls to zero, the regime is not in trouble. Some people have problems, but the regime is not trouble. Because the regime derives its legitimacy and strength not from the growth rate. It derives its legitimacy from democratic pluralism. So in that sense, the Chinese state is riding a tiger. Socialism is no longer the glue. Economic, high economic growth and the nationalist glory this gives provides the main source of legitimacy. And it is this tiger that the Chinese government will find difficult to dismount. Let me stop there. Thank you.